0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton is one step away from being put into lockdown. If the city was locked down, what would be accomplished? We're going to talk about that. Well, Hamilton is in the red zone and London is yellow, Ontario's top doctor says we could all be in the green zone with minimal restrictions by Christmas. Really? Is that realistic? And the Toronto Van Attack trial saw the accused's father take the stand with some very troubling testimony. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. And with Hamilton in the red, we are very close to a lockdown. I know that uh, with their session yesterday afternoon, their virtual session, uh, Paul Johnson and uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger and, of course, the Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, also expressed some concern about what is happening and uh, how we get out of the situation that we're in right now. And to that end, we are pleased to welcome Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, the Chief Medical Officer of Health of the City of Hamilton, to the Bill Kelly Show to uh, talk to us about this. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today.
1: Good morning, Bill. I'm glad to be here.
0: I got a logistical question if I could for you, doctor. To start right off the bat, I'm just looking at some of the stats here. Uh, the, there are five regions in the, in the province right now that are in, in the red zone, Hamilton being one of them. Uh, and one of the barometers, of course, is the the weekly rates of uh, per 100,000 people. Peel is 174.5. Uh, Toronto is 102. York is 75. Hamilton's only 54.4. Now that's not gr- a great number, but do we even need to be in this category?
1: You know, that's the uh, that's the question a lot of people have asked, but when you look at the numbers and where we've been over the last several weeks, we have been steadily increasing in terms of our number of cases, and and uh, when we look at what's happened with our colleagues who have ended up with numbers as high as Peel and York and elsewhere, um, they saw that same steady climb too, and, and really the advice was, and the reason for the shift in the framework last week, was that if you don't get a handle on this early, those numbers just continue to go up and up and up and so we've been in that pattern of increasing cases we got to that threshold of uh, 50 cases for us over 50 cases per 100,000 per week and um, you know they they had dropped the, the threshold down to 40 so I think this is definitely where we need to be right now we certainly are continuing to see with our cases that uh, the result of people not following public health guidance around masking physical distancing social events and and so if we don't get a handle on this it's uh it's going to continue to go so this is where we need to be
0: how do you get a handle on it i mean the designation is one thing and that that i guess technically sends up a red flag and said hey you know you got a problem here and you better deal with it per- pretty quickly and that was the theme i know that you all three of you were talking about yesterday during the video conference but uh do they give you extra tools are there extra resources for you to try to get a handle on this or is it uh, you know what what do you do you can't just cross your fingers there's got to be some action plan here
1: no, you're absolutely right, Bill. You can't just cross your fingers and hope this one is going to go away. It's here with us. We have to figure out how to live with COVID. And ideally, where we want to be living with COVID is in the green and the yellow zones, not in the orange, not in the red. And we certainly don't want to get to the gray and the lockdown. And so, you know, we continue to do it in the ways that, that we got there in the first way. We educate people in terms of what it is that they need to do. We put rules in place around gatherings and and trying to reduce uh, the amount of exposure in any of the high-risk activities like gyms and fitness centers, like restaurants, like those sorts of things where the risks are higher. Um, and uh, ultimately, we, uh, we do do enforcement as well. And as you know, our MLE colleagues are doing that around The city looking at bars and restaurants where they're not following uh, the guidelines. The police are out there where we've had, you know, challenges with big events like the car rally that happened in Lancaster. Mm -hmm. So enforcement is a piece of it, too. But ultimately, this comes down to each and every one of us following the guidance, doing what needs to be done to protect ourselves, to protect our loved ones, protect the vulnerable in the community and make sure that our kids can keep going to school we know that's so critical for them, for their learning, their development, their mental health. Make sure as many as possible, possible of us can keep going to work. That too is critical, of course, for our economic health and for our, for our mental health as well. And so, you know, it, it really does come down to each and every one of us
0: i know that you've been preaching about education since this whole thing started back in the middle of march when we had to have a lockdown in that particular situation that was province wide of course uh but at this stage i mean as as we look at november the 17th now some months after that uh, i'm not so sure if education is is a factor people know what they're supposed to do i think the biggest frustration you must be feeling and i know i talked to the mayor about this the other day too is they know what they should be doing but a lot of us just are thumbing your nose and saying i'm not going to bother i'm not going to do it anymore
1: Yeah, we we certainly have seen that. And where we see the cases, it's those people who made those choices who've ended up getting sick. And unfortunately, some of them get very sick. And unfortunately, some people, as you've seen, have gone on to die um, as a result of COVID-19 in this wave again. And so that's exactly what we're trying to prevent from happening. And so that is where, you know, additional closures come in where, okay, you can't go to those venues and do those things um, that you may have been doing and not following the guidance. And it's where the enforcement piece comes in. And and we know in any behavior change, you know, it's those, uh, those, uh, the enforcement is ultimately necessary to convince some people to do it. We know this is challenging that, you know, people want to go back and do other things. uh, But the best way to, to, to live with COVID is to get the numbers down, keep following the public health measures, get the numbers down so that we can be in those yellow and green zones.
0: There's another area of concern that you and I have talked about, well, since March, right? and that, of course, is the conditions in long-term care facilities. Uh, when you look at the spike here in the Hamilton area, Doctor, as you well know, uh, a good deal of those numbers, of course, are what's happening in long-term care facilities. Uh, earlier this week, the, the Premier essentially said, well, that's up to the local uh, public health boards to, to do the immediate measures on this, which I, and now, and in the interest of full disclosure, I must tell our listeners, and I know you remember this, I was on City Council in the late 1990s when provincial governments started to down load uh, problems onto the municipal government so i've got a problem with it to begin with and that sounded an awful lot like what the premier was doing the other day it was simply saying you guys deal with this uh you're going to have to deal with it one way or another how how do you handle that because it's it's a problem that's just as bad if not worse than it was in the springtime
1: yeah unfortunately it's it's we do have some bad scenarios where we do have larger outbreaks in a couple of our facilities um, and that's certainly not what we want to see at all, because it does lead to people getting very sick and unfortunately passing away. You know, public health has been doing outbreak control for <laughs> I don't know how many years. This is my uh, 26th year of doing it. We've been doing it long before I came uh, into this uh, into this job, and it's a core uh, piece of what we do. So we have no problem at all at, at working through outbreaks, at addressing issues about looking at IPAC um looking at what people need to do in order to come into compliance. What we do need as well is that that to have backup and looking at it from a provincial perspective, looking to see what the bigger longer term lessons are, what needs to change. You know, we've had a lot of discussion about the fact that the physical plant of some of these facilities makes infection control very difficult. We've had a lot of talk about social policy for people who to be able to be off sick and uh, to ensure that their job is kept. And so, we absolutely need the government looking at those bigger issues and uh, continuing to help us with trends, but we'll keep going in, in terms of the outbreak control and, and doing what we need to do.
0: we got a couple of seconds left here, and I get, I'll cut right to the bottom line here. Of course, you're not responsible for the designations. That's up to the to the provincial bodies that are doing this. Do we need a lockdown to get a handle on this?
1: You know, I sure I sure hope not. A lockdown is not good for our community. It's not good for business. It's not good for people in the long term. It means people are getting sick. It means people are dying. And uh, and so we definitely don't want to go there, but ultimately we also don't want to have it just running rampant throughout and, and have the numbers get up even higher. So ultimately if we need to go back to lock it down, then, then I'm sure the Premier is going to do that. I know that uh, they're getting advice around that as we speak, but uh, I sure hope we don't have to go there.
0: Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, as always, Doctor, I know how busy you are today. Thanks so much for the time today. Appreciate it.
1: Absolutely, Bill. Take care.
0: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'd like to uh, bring Dr. Dominic Mertz into the conversation, Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University in Hamilton. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you're with us here today. Yes,
2: good morning, and thanks for having me, Bill.
0: Well, let me ask you I, the same question I asked Dr. Richardson uh, about designation. I mean, the, there's a severity and, and, and I think a call to action here when you get designated in the in the red zone, such as Hamilton is right now. and and our numbers are are, are problematic, to be sure. Uh, but you know is, 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 is there a middle ground here? I mean, are we as bad as, as Peel and as bad as Toronto and some of these other areas when it comes to to the rate of infection?
2: Yeah, in my mind we are somewhere between where we should be and where in particular Peel currently is sitting at, right? When you're looking at number of cases per population, we have four times less than Peel and two times less than Toronto and we certainly want to avoid getting there as well. And the, the intention of uh being labelled as right now with all the restrictions that come with it, uh is to is this the goal to to prevent that from happening? That we get where Toronto or, in particular, where Peel currently sits at.
0: So how do we how do we curtail this? How do we slow those numbers down? I know that uh, you know we we have seen a slight decrease over the last couple of days, and that's that's heartening to see that that's happening. But how do you put the brakes on this?
2: Yeah, I mean we we certainly have been on the wrong track for over the last couple of weeks, which eventually. Uh, ended up in us being uh, or getting into the red zone by Friday, which was a combination of A, increasing counts, increasing outbreaks, and at the same time, the change in in the provincial framework. And that's why we jumped right from from yellow to to red. Um, How how to curtail this? I I mean, at this point of time, um, we have this framework. We need to learn how it works and whether it works. The hope certainly is that if a significant proportion of transmissions occur in those settings that have now additional restrictions, then we should see a benefit of of those restrictions. Uh, as you said over the last few days, things looked better. We are more in the 30 uh, cases per day rather than the 50 up to 60 that we had been for for a few days uh, a week back, but. It, A, it's too early to call that it's actually a change in trend. Um, And at the same time, we need to acknowledge that um, lots of the um, up and downs that we see in number of cases per day are because of outbreaks. So once we get a large outbreak, numbers go up. When we only have small outbreaks or less outbreaks, numbers come down. Um, And again, the, the goals with those restrictions are... To, to limit or at least have a smaller number of outbreaks on, on a given day or in a in a given time period which over time will drive down, hopefully, uh, our case numbers and as such the effect on public health and the healthcare system.
0: Doctor- one of the key things we've learned in the number of months we've been dealing with this virus right now is that we've talked about the essentials in our role, of course, masking social distancing and avoiding gatherings. That, that's what each and every one of us can do. But from the statistical standpoint, uh, once you identify an outbreak like this, contact tracing is such an important part. When the numbers spike as quickly as they have over the last couple of weeks, how, how much more difficult is that to do that tracing?
2: And I think that that's the main reason why we want to keep the number of cases in a manageable range, right? To me, the overarching goal must be that our public health has the resource to do the contact tracing. Once that fails, and we've seen that in other jurisdictions, cases will just continue to climb because you're unable to um, interrupt the chain of transmission. So that's the one piece. And the other piece, and that's currently an issue in prampton is the healthcare system right we have a healthcare system that at baseline is already strained in winter then you add a few dozens of of covid patients and suddenly you you have issues and you don't have space for the patients anymore to me the overarching goal of any restrictions are to protect the public health system and to uh, protect the, the healthcare system and that there's a certain number of cases and outbreaks that we can manage. Once it's above that, we need to try to to curb the number of cases that we have out there.
0: Are you concerned about those numbers and the impact it's gonna have on for instance on hospitalizations?
2: I mean so far and that's the local view for Hamilton we have been managing well. Uh, from from the hospital perspective. I think the max we have had was around 15 patients um, hospitalized, maybe up to 20. So in that range, that's something we can manage. Um, I, I think what had been concerning was the trend that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. We, we cannot sustain that trend with cases going up every week, higher and higher and more and more outbreaks. And the piece that, that eventually Uh, sort of breaks us is once we have large outbreaks in long-term care facilities um, which unfortunately we still don't have under control. It's a very similar picture as what we've seen uh, during wave one there unfortunately.
0: Yeah, that's uh, one of the great frustrations. I know that uh, the Premier himself said he was going to address that in the springtime, and I know they've set up a committee and everything, but as you know, uh, Dr. you know, governments move at glacial speed sometime, and the second wave has come upon us before they've been able to enact almost any of the stuff that they've talked about wanting to do, and sadly we're seeing the uh, the tragic results as, 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 as that happens now. Do we have the tools to do what we need to do at this stage? I mean, you know, we're we're in a red zone right now. We've got problems in long-term care facilities. As I was just mentioning to Dr. Richardson, the province has basically said it's going to be up to the local public health uh, organizations to deal with the LTC problem. Uh, Do we have what we need to have here to make this thing go away, or at least to to try to, let's use that phrase again, bend the curve, flatten the curve?
2: We have a local infrastructure that, that's certainly working around this and tries to improve the situation that we have in, in the long-term care or any congregate, congregate living setting and certainly moving to the right direction there. The issue is there are certain things we cannot fix within a short period of time. And that's simply the infrastructure that, that we are working with. And actually the same applies to acute care, right? Whenever you have four bedrooms or three bedrooms, uh, you add risk to the system. And that's just the footprints that we have to live with. And then you want to try to find a balance thinking about long-term care. I mean, rightfully, there was a lot of complaints from from families that, are on, that they are unable to to visit their loved ones in a long-term care facility during wave one. And now restrictions are added there again as well. Uh, but trying to balance that need for the residents of those settings and uh, their family members um, to be able to visit. But at the same time, knowing that with opening to visitors, you add a certain level of risk to the system. That's a very, uh, very challenging situation, trying to find what's what's the right thing there.
0: Exactly. Um, well, it's, um, one of, it's one of many challenges, benefits. obviously. Uh, Doctor, we're just about out of time on this particular segment. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about this more uh, down the road as we continue to monitor these numbers. Thank you for your time, and thank you for the great work that you and your staff are doing at McMaster to track this. We appreciate it so much. Thank you. You're very uh, welcome. Bye, Bill. Take, Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario's chief medical officer of health thinks that we could all be at level green, which is the lowest possible level for the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, he said that yesterday. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Todd Coleman, Ph.D. Assistant Professor in the Department of Health Sciences at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, Doctor, uh, great to have you back in the program, thanks for the time today.
3: Yeah, thanks again.
0: Uh, Listen, I'm a a glasses half full kind of guy, I like to be optimistic as much as possible, Uh, but given the fact that we're in the red zone right now in in Peel and Toronto and a number of other areas and some of them are on orange, is it realistic to think that we can knock this thing down by Christmas time back down to, to the green level?
3: uh i i'm also quite optim- optimistic person but uh i think that's real pie in the sky thinking uh unfortunately the way that we're moving right now i think that's really unrealistic uh,
0: i mean it would take a huge sea change and i don't just mean from from public health officials but i'm talking about from from average citizens to be able to turn their behavior around and uh, knowing you know human behavior uh, as as we do i it, i don't know that people have got the message right now to say hey i i know i've been not doing what i'm supposed to do but i'm going to change i've I've converted myself now that's 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 a pretty optimistic and pretty uh hopeful idea that that people are going to have that change of heart
3: yeah exactly and and with the the momentum that we're on uh it, it's it's still we're still going to see increases in cases for a little while even if we took some of the most drastic measures uh like a lockdown.
0: So what do we do when we're in a situation like this? And you know, it's you know, we're as we say, we're in the red zone. Uh, London is in in yellow, uh, and their numbers are increasing, but not as dramatically, of course. So I mean, we're we're going down the wrong road here. I mean, the, the trends are going the wrong way. How do you turn that around? Is it, is this like turning a, a, a an ocean liner around? Does it take that much time?
3: Yeah, it, it is a it is a long and arduous process uh, to try and turn around the, the trajectory that we're on um, it, it involves it, if we're looking to do it in the minimal amount of time as possible unfortunately it does involve uh, uh, intervention at either the provincial or the national level
0: uh, I'm not so sure that's forthcoming I mean they all tell us you know they just tell us what you need yeah, but when we hear an announcement like we did earlier this week from the Premier here in Ontario that said essentially uh, the long-term care facilities are going to be responsible responsibility of the local uh, public health boards because uh, they can handle it better, uh, that's 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 almost like washing your hands of the situation. That's not the kind of leadership we're looking for I get to obtain those numbers.
3: That's exactly right, and it, it seems as if there's some sort of uh, uh, trade-off in, or sort of trying to see who's going to act first with in regards to uh, provincial versus national interventions. Uh, and then the province saying that they don't want national intervention, uh, but then abdicating responsibility and putting it onto local health units to try and manage the situation without making any real uh, public health intervention instead of just creating a colouring book to decide what area uh, is, is what colour.
0: That's got to be one of the great frustrations, though, isn't it, Doctor? I mean, you know, they, they keep saying that this is not a political issue. They're making it a political issue by doing this little, you know, this squabbling back and forth, You know, the stay out of my jurisdiction. Well, you're not doing the job properly. The numbers indicate you're not. Uh, and, and there's been a cry, and hue and cry for months now that there needs to be a national strategy. Uh, it, it, the national strategy is not 11 different strategies across the, the country. That doesn't seem to be working. That's a patchwork.
3: That's right. And we're seeing uh, any area that doesn't have a national strategy is is largely affected by this. There's so much uh, uh, uncoordinated activity happening from province to province uh, uh, and nothing national really other than really a simple list of recommendations uh, that it creates a little bit of confusion. And we're seeing that happening, especially in Ontario, with. Uh, all of these changes that seem to to happen. So the new color coding system, changes in requirements to testing, changes in suggestions about what prevents uh, uh, infection in the first place. All of these things create confusion among people and it doesn't help to create long-lasting change in terms of trying to really sort of drop this or plateau this curve and, and go in the other direction.
0: Because I know that they meet on a regular basis. Well, virtually, of course, they meet uh, these days. Mm -hmm. Uh, The prime minister and and the premiers uh, have these long conversations. But I would have thought at some point they would have said, okay, we're all uh, together on this. Here's the consensus opinion. Here's what we're going to do moving forward. And instead, we're getting into a turf war, which is is not really helpful to try to knock these numbers down.
3: No, it's not helpful. And and, and a lot of this has to do with I I can see the provinces – uh, hesitation in terms of balancing the economy in terms of human health but we're we're seeing uh, uh, overwhelming amounts of people starting to get into the hospital system in the ICU beds uh, and simply saying I'm gonna I'm gonna monitor this this keeps me up at night this doesn't this doesn't instill confidence in people that things are going to change it just means that we're we're following a path to increasing those numbers of cases. And Dr. Williams saying that we're going to be in the green by Christmas is probably one of the most unrealistic, unscientific things I've ever heard.
0: Well, and here we are with numbers, and, you know, let's talk numbers because that's what the province loves to do every time. And, you know, we look at the rate of uh, infection per 100,000 people, and I think Hamilton's around 54 right now. Uh, some of the other ones are like 141 or something. To get to green, where Dr. Williams is hopeful that we will do it, and he's talking about on a province-wide basis, uh, mm-hmm. according to the, their, their own data, the province's own data, uh, that number would have to go, in Hamilton's case, from 54 down to less than 10. Uh, mm-hmm. And we've got like five weeks to do that. That's uh, that's a pretty amazing uh, you know uh, goal to try to attain.
3: Yeah, it is. And if we look, we, we have a, a, a first wave to compare ourselves to. Uh, and we saw at the, the height of that wave in April uh, that when we were at our highest cases, trying to turn that around doesn't happen overnight. It took almost two months, three months before we reached low levels, uh, low levels enough to Compared to the ones that you're mentioning in terms of those thresholds, which seem to change from day to day, by the way, as well.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I'm just as critical as as you are about this color coding system. I don't know that it helps at anything at all, uh, just to put a color designation on something that was already there anyway, and it, it doesn't seem to be uh, motivational to, to try to get people to change what they're doing. But, but. And it's got to be awfully frustrating, too, when you look at these number of new cases, and and we're doing a terrible job of contact tracing these days, and maybe that's because the numbers are going so high and there's only a limited amount of resources that, you know, public boards of health have in situations like this. But a rather troubling story that I saw the other day, doctor, that simply said even people that are, you know, in, be trying to follow the protocol in contact tracing, they have no idea where they, they got the virus. Which, which it tells me you know they've in other words they've been so many places they don't know well you're not supposed to be going so many places that's the problem
3: that's right if you can't remember where you may have contracted something uh, uh, to the levels that we're seeing it's almost it seems as if uh, upwards of a third of, of new cases have no idea where they may have gotten this um, that flies in in the face of everything that, Uh, We know uh, uh, in terms of contact tracing, the ability to be able to do anything about this, it really just impedes our public health response and the ability to do anything about this in the first place.
0: Well, you know, gee, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I went to a wedding at some friends. I know I wasn't supposed to, but, you know, and then I was at the mall for a couple of hours the other day. And they, they, these mm-hmm. are all things that are causing the numbers. And this is, this is, I guess, the, the thing that must frustrate you terribly when you're trying to do the research on this is they know that they shouldn't be doing this, but they're doing it anyway. And then they're, they're scratching their heads and saying, gee, I wonder how the numbers are getting as high as they are.
3: Yeah, and, and I, I've seen some interviews with people. There's still um, um, there's a, a high level of denialism still happening, uh, despite the numbers that we're seeing. Uh, not everybody knows someone who has been infected, uh, so this this it doesn't hit home yet until people are are infected. And even then, I've seen some interviews in the U.S. with public health uh, uh, and healthcare providers who say people still don't think that they have it until uh, the moment that they die.
0: Well, yeah, wasn't that a tragic story we saw on the weekend? From This was an, mm-hmm. an, 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 an emergency nurse. No, she actually was an ICU nurse. Uh, that said the number of the people that were actually in ICU uh, were still saying that this is not COVID. I can't believe this is happening to me. Uh, and, and they would die. I mean, they, their last words would be, I don't believe this is COVID. I mean, right. what, in that particular circumstance, what else do you need uh, as, as proof? Uh,
3: and that's where you, I, I wonder
0: uh, where
3: we are uh, just as, as a population where we can't take facts, simple facts, of things around us even our own health our own experiences and translate into the fact that i'm infected with something that could potentially kill me
0: or somebody else and and you know you've talked to us about the symptoms and and not everybody who of course tests positive ends up in the hospital uh as a matter of fact sometimes if you're not getting tested you may not even know that you've had covid it might just be a runny nose and a sore throat for a couple of days that you can pass off as something else but it may indeed be covid uh, and and if you recover from that, God bless you. That's great that you've recovered from it. and You only had a mild case. But how many people did you spread the virus to in the meantime?
3: That's right, exactly it. And and we know, we know the profile of this. We've known it for months that there is a significant number of of a proportion of people who are asymptomatic, who are contributing to the spread of this.
0: Well. Like I say, I, I know that people keep saying, "Well, you know, we need to educate people." But know we. we I, I think we're into the enforcement stage in this, and we just got to get p- cracked down on people that uh, that aren't paying attention here Uh, because it's getting into critical situations again and to your point i know we've got about a minute left here uh when we started to see those numbers go down and we started to flatten that curve uh back in the springtime as you've talked about a lot of it had to do with the fact that the weather got nicer and we went outside where the virus is not as as dangerous (laughs) just the opposite now it's getting colder and we're going to be indoors more so this has got to be a behavioral situation that has to be adjusted
3: yeah and and it it does it does uh, uh, beg the question from the the province at least, or even the national level. Uh, where do we go next? What do we do next? Yeah. Uh, what kinds of? I, I don't see anything uh, uh, coming down the pipeline about next steps or suggestions about what we're going to do next. And unfortunately, that leaves us in a really, really awful situation because the trajectory is going so high that we, we're we just going to keep moving along that path, seeing more and more cases uh, per day.
0: Well, uh, we'll see what happens today when uh, both the Prime Minister and the Premier uh, have their daily briefings. Uh, Doctor, always yeah. a pleasure to have you on here. Great to get your perspective. Thanks so much. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon.
3: Thanks. You too.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML very troubling uh, trial of course the the van trial that we've uh, talked about the Toronto van attack uh, is uh, ongoing it's uh, a resumed testimony yesterday Uh, Global's Dave Woodard is actually just going into the courtroom in a couple of uh, minutes but he's going to pop out for a couple of seconds here uh, to give us an update on uh, on what's been going on and what we can expect today. Uh, Dave thanks so much for the time glad you could be with us for a few minutes. Thanks Bill. Uh, Very troubling testimony from uh, from the accused's father yesterday what was it like?
4: Yeah, so I really kind of broke it down into two parts. The first part was uh, Vahe um, Manassian. So he was called Vic by his family and by the the lawyers. Uh, But the first part was him talking about the day of the incident, talking about the accused's state of mind during the morning. Uh, Vic Manassian talking about his son and, and how he was in a good mood, that he was talking about the future Uh, that he was talking about buying a car, possibly seeing more friends and family um, before dropping them off at the uh, Indigo in Woodbridge. Um, And, you know, asking, uh, you know, did he have any clue as to what was about to happen? And of course, Vic Manassian said no. Uh, The second half of the day really kind of focused on some of the uh, educational pieces and the upbringing of Alec Manassian. So talking about things like, um, you know his social life, whether he was bullied, uh, how he reacted to certain pieces of information, um, if he had shown any kind of emotional reaction to a loved one being sick or dying, um, and that really is is the the key part of the defense uh, in this is talking about whether. Alec Manassian knew what he was doing was wrong and so that was what the defense was trying to go for yesterday was really to show that Alec Manassian's autism spectrum disorder did play a part in you know what happened on April 23rd 2018.
0: Was his father aware or did this even come up in the testimony about uh, the the accused's uh, shall we say proclivities uh, about sexuality and things of that nature?
4: Not at all. And in fact, actually, at one point they were talking about uh, in the first half um, of the uh, the Crown's case, they were talking about how Alec Manassian was saying that, uh, you know, he was at a party in 2013. I don't know if you recall that. He said that he approached a girl and she turned him down. Um, And Vic Manassian kind of replied to that saying, there's no way that happened. Um, saying that his son was far too shy around women to the point where even now when uh, a a, a woman waitress would, you know, approach him, he would sometimes have to have somebody else make the order. He was that shy. Um, So Vic Manassian was almost actually pointing towards some of the other, uh, quote unquote, incel leaders uh, as kind of influencing that mindset. He thinks that um, Alec Manassian was actually just taking it from their manifestos and, and kind of telling police about it.
0: I know one of the areas of conversation that did come up during the the, the questioning yesterday was about uh, uh, after the fact and, and the conversations his father had with him after the fact uh, where, you know, he had show remorse. And uh, that, that was a rather interesting uh, back and forth, wasn't it?
4: It was there. Was, there was a little bit of a, um, a legal break actually at that point because the the crown did object to it because they were saying it was hearsay. After a little while, the, the court did agree that it needed to be put into testimony and that it could be questioned on cross examination. At any rate, yes. Um, so uh, Vic Manassian said that you know his son his son has not or ever shown remorse uh, for what happened that day, and it wasn't until months later. Um, that Alec Manassian actually went to his father and said, has this affected you at all? So a a very uh, real sense of not understanding the gravity of the situation, at least in the words of Vic Manassian.
0: His father also said that he, uh, Alex actually told him, he says, I've done nothing wrong. Uh, which is a rather stark statement, I mean, given the the scenario that developed in, in that short period of time. Uh, but it, I, I guess, this, as you mentioned to us the first uh, day of the trial, Dave, this is all really focusing on laser-focusing at this stage, is what was going on in this guy's mind that particular day.
4: And you know what's going to be very interesting? Uh, Boris Potensky, who's the lawyer for Alec Manassian, was saying, you know, that he isn't trying to say that Alec Manassian you know, never took accountability for it, saying that he did it, um, saying that he wasn't sorry for it. Um, but the thing is, is that he, he argued that it's going to be a very nuanced um, situation. And I think it'll be very interesting to see, um, you know, later on today, we're assuming that uh, the forensic uh, psychiatrist or psychologist will be starting to testify for the defense as well. Uh, so to see where that goes, from that situation will be interesting.
0: Uh, Dave, I know you got to get into the courtroom. Uh, great reporting on this. Uh, we'll follow your reports through the course of the day, as always. And uh, thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.